And I'll share a few verses, give a little historical background, give you a chance to try to appreciate what's happening. And then at the end, we'll ask us, ask the question that we always ask, how does this change us? How does this transform us today? But uh, this is an incredible story. I, I love the story. I know many of you do. And uh, again, we're going to just read a few verses at a time, comment on it. Again, it'll be helpful for you to actually have a Bible open. The verses won't be on the screen to, uh, in order to be able to follow the track of the, the uh, narrative. Okay? Sound good? Let's, let's go ahead and start. Verse 1, chapter 4 in John. Now, when Jesus learned that the Pharisees had heard that Jesus was making and baptizing more disciples than John, although Jesus himself did not baptize, but only his disciples, he left Judea and departed again for Galilee. It's interesting. Jesus is sensitive. He's very sensitive to how the Pharisees might take advantage of of this potential division. Jesus did not want to give the Pharisees any chance to drive a wedge between he and John the Baptist, or at least their disciples. So he leaves. He leaves for Galilee. That's a three-day journey by foot. Verse 4. And he had to pass through Samaria. So he came to a town, came to a town of Samaria called Sychar, near the field that Jacob had given to his son Joseph. Jacob was well, was well was there, so Jesus, wearied as he was from his journey, was sitting beside the well. It was about the sixth hour. Traveling north, Jesus had to go through Samaria. Now, as we said on other occasions, Jews and Samaritans were bitter enemies. Some Jews, not all, would take a longer route to avoid even stepping foot in Samaria. The way some of you talk about uh, driving and avoiding driving in Michigan. Samaria at one point had been the capital of the northern kingdom. The prophets often referred to the northern kingdom in shorthand as Samaria. But 722, the Assyrians invade the northern kingdom. They deport all the Israelites of any sort of means or substance, and they settle the land with foreigners. They then intermarried with the surviving Israelites and together patched together this version, a kind of variant version of the ancient Jewish religion. And so they had their, for example, they had their own version, Samaritans had their own version of the Pentateuch, the first five books of the Bible. They did not recognize the rest of the Hebrew scriptures. They had their own temple, their central place of worship at Mount Gerizim. And they had their own version of Jewish history. All of this led to a serious divide between Jews and Samaritans posing a seemingly impenetrable barrier. In the minds of devout Jews, Samaritans were in a continual state of sin and uncleanness, dealing with them at any level was a cultural and spiritual compromise. So with that background, now look at verse 7. A woman from Samaria came to draw water, and Jesus said to her, Give me a drink. For his disciples had gone away into the city to buy food. 
The Samaritan woman said to him, How is it that you, a Jew, ask for a drink from me, a woman of Samaria? For Jews have no dealings with Samaritans. Well, to this supposed barrier, Jesus cares nothing for. Not only did he not lecture her, but there is actually a level of transparency in expressing a real need. He asked for a drink because it's 12 noon and they've been traveling in the dry, arid Near East. Now, why does she come at noon? In this era, women would come together at morning or in the evening to draw water. And why does she come alone? Traditionally, women would come together. They'd come in groups to draw water. Did she feel shame? Was she an outcast among a nation of outcasts? Well, to drink from her cup would have been a disaster for a pious Jew. It would have made him or her ceremonially unclean. Now, we'll see it again, but this is not the first time in John's gospel we see a holy rebel coming out in Jesus and a defiance, really a defiance of the expected rules. Look at verse 10. Jesus answered her, If you knew the gift of God and who it is saying to you, give me a drink, you would have asked him and he would have given you living water. The woman said to him, Sir, you have nothing to draw water with. And the well is deep. Where do you get that living water? Are you greater than our father Jacob? He gave us the well and drank from it himself, as did his sons and his livestock. You remember in chapter 3, we met Nicodemus. And when Jesus told Nicodemus that you must be born again, he wondered, how in the world could I ever uh, crawl back into the stomach of my mother and be born again? He was thinking strictly on a physical plane. Same thing here. She is thinking strictly on a physical plane. Her mind is boxed in because she can't see it any differently. And she's confused. Where's your bucket at? How are you going to draw this water? And we sense that she's asking her, are you a magician or a conjurer? And with a hint of skepticism, she asks, hey, are you greater than our father Jacob? Even the Samaritans here saw themselves as true descendants of, of Jacob, who was the father of the 12 tribes of Israel. Verse 13. Jesus said to her, Everyone who drinks of this water will be thirsty again. But whoever drinks of the water that I will give him will never be thirsty again. The water that I will give him will become in him a spring of water. Welling up to eternal life. Jacob's well, by the way, was an actual spring. And by the way, we, we know its location even to this very day. Verse 15, the woman said to him, Sir, give me this water so that I will not be thirsty or I have to come here to draw water. Now, to appreciate this, we have to imagine living in the Near East. Living in the Midwest, we at times have more water than we need. Literally, my wife and I, this past 12 months, have committed thousands of dollars to moving water either off our property or to a, its right place. We've got plenty. Your baseball games sometimes in the spring are rained out. And softball games, rained out game after game after game. 
And in our modern era, access to water is immediate, right? You turn on your sink and like magic, there it is. We even bottle our water, call it fancy names and sell it. But for an arid, dry land in ancient times, access to water was a critical commodity. Your life depended on it. Where you lived and your vocation was revolving around where the water was. We depend on it as well, but we don't have to think about it day in and day out. Now, later on, Jesus will connect this water with what? It's beautiful. He's going to connect this water, this living water, with the gift of the Holy Spirit. You know, Jesus read his Bible, the Bible he had in his day. And one of those books that he read was the book of Isaiah. And there in Isaiah, we find this history, this precedent for talking about water with a double meaning. Look at the screen. Isaiah 12, 3, for example. With joy, you will draw water from the wells of salvation. 44, 3. For I will pour water on the thirsty land and streams on the dry ground. I will pour out my spirit upon your offspring and my blessing on your descendants. Isaiah 55, 1. Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. And he who has no money, come, buy and eat. Come, buy wine and milk without money and without price. This water, he says to her, will satisfy a person's deepest longings. Spiritually, emotionally, relationally, and even intellectually. The Holy Spirit will make the love of Christ real to us. It is a quality of life that begins now and continues into the age to come. And so she does what any of us would have done if we were in that same conversation. Sir, um, can I try a taste of that water? And Jesus is more than willing to give it to her. But before she can receive it, she must address an issue. Look at verse 16. Jesus said to her, go call your husband and come here. The woman answered him, I have no husband. Jesus said to her, you are right in saying, I have no husband. For you have had five husbands, and the one you now have is not your husband. What you've said is true. Can you imagine this exchange? What an amazing exchange this must have been. What feelings must have coursed through this woman's veins. A little bit of fear, but a little bit of sense of who is this man? Jesus displays here a supernatural knowledge of this woman's background and also her present situation. He doesn't do it to impress her, but he does it to help her come to grips with what she must do if she's going to receive this gift. She's a sexually and a relationally broken woman. Their age was not unlike ours. She desperately needed this gift. And I think she begins to realize that this, this man in some way can address this need for love, this need for rootedness in my life. Now, little parentheses. 
Isn't it amazing at how Jesus adapts to each conversation? In chapter 3, we saw that he was able to address a self-sufficient, highly regarded teacher of the law. And here he talks to an anonymous woman shamed by her past just, just as easily. With both, he is able to work through their pretenses, their false selves, in order to address their greatest needs and their greatest despair. Look at verse 19. The woman said to him, Sir, I perceive that you're a prophet. Yeah. Our fathers worshipped on this mountain, but you say that in Jerusalem is a place where you where your people ought to worship, where people ought to worship. Jesus said to her, Woman, believe me, the hour is coming when neither on this mountain nor in Jerusalem will you worship the Father. You worship what you do not know. We worship what we know, for salvation is from the Jews. But an hour is coming and is now here when the true worshipers will worship the Father in spirit and truth. For the Father is seeking people to worship Him. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. Okay, there's a lot there. Let's break this down a little bit. First of all, is she deflecting the conversation? Is it getting a little too personal for her? She brings up this familiar theological debate between Jews and Samaritans regarding the central place of worship. I'm not so sure of that. I'm not so sure. I think she's curious, but she's not sure perhaps where to head into this conversation. But there's this revelation of her personal life. So she, she understands that Jesus is he's special in some way. What he did, this was the stuff that prophets did. Jesus says the hour is coming. Now, we've seen these words before. Those words point to a crisis, and they point to the need for a decision. We've already proven that the phrase, the hour is coming in John's gospel, refers to Christ's death, his resurrection, and his enthronement as king. And with that work accomplished, with that work done, now there will be a pivot in how we relate to God. I think this is what he's saying. Traditionally, religious people, when they thought about worship, they located worship in a specific place at a specific time in a temple. That sacred space was the meeting place where God and man overlapped, where they met. Jesus is hinting here at a radical truth, isn't he? Which simply says, I am greater than the temple. The true temple is here in your midst. I am that point of access between God and between man. It's through me that you'll learn to relate to God freely and honestly. In the past, worship was reserved for a special time and a special place. Now, new worshipers will worship anywhere. And they will worship as easily as living and as breathing. And what will differentiate, differentiate these new worshipers is that they will worship in spirit and truth. Now, what does he mean by spirit? We have to take a moment because 
a lot of images come to our mind when we try to define spirit. For us, spirit could mean anything from what cheerleaders have to the memory of a deceased person or to the ghost roaming through your attic. But John helps ground what he means by saying that God is spirit. Meaning God exists on a far different plane in a wonderful and in an expansive way. He is not limited in space by a physical body, nor can he be perceived through the senses. Therefore, a couple of implications. Worshippers are not confined to one place where they must go to approach God. And they also much... They also must approach God by faith. Why? Because they can't apprehend him through their senses. They, they can't hear him or see him directly. So they must approach God by faith. And they will worship in truth. They will worship in truth. We worship out of the condition of our heart. A distant heart that goes through all the right external trappings, comes to the right time and the right place, but their heart is distant, that's not worship. Building an identity, a false sense of security on anything other than God leaves us unable to worship. Even if we show up to church, even if we show up to the right places, if we are building our identity, our hope on something or someone other than God, We are not able, we don't have the heart condition to worship. This woman built her identity on trying to find the right man. Nicodemus built it on religion. Jesus invites both of them to become worshipers. That's what God is after. Worshipers. He's after your heart. Look at verse 25. The woman said to him, I know that Messiah is coming. He was called the Christ. When he comes, he will tell us all things. Jesus said to her, I who speak to you am he. Now, does she in this moment believe that Jesus is the Messiah? It's it's doubtful. But something's been stirred in her heart through this engagement. And I think this woman, though she's been defined by shame and by relational wreckage, I think she's a genuine seeker. You see, the Samaritans also expected a Messiah-type figure. But they were looking more for a teacher rather than the sort of Savior that the Jews were. And it's evidenced here by what she says. He says, when the Messiah comes, he'll explain to us. He'll, He'll teach us. He'll make clear everything. And are you surprised Jesus is so forthright here? He's so forthright. D.A. Carson points out that it's entirely in line for him to reveal who he is to the Samaritans. Something he does not do with the Jews. With the Jews, that title, Messiah, carried so much political, so much military baggage in that overheated environment of expectations. That when Jesus talks about who he is to Jews, he's much more subdued, much more nuanced. But here, with this woman... He leaves no doubt in regard to who he is, to his identity. Verse 27. Just then his disciples came back. 
And they marveled that he was dealing with a woman. But no one said, what do you seek? Or why are you talking with her? They were beginning to learn not to ask dumb questions. But the point is this. Jesus would not be held hostage by the sexism of his day. Jesus was constantly teaching. And he was constantly reworking the prejudices and the stifling cultural traditions in the world that the disciples grew up in. If they were to become the kind of men who could launch a new kingdom, they would have to see the world far differently. The disciples would need, for example, to rebel against hundreds of years of Jewish tradition that regarded Gentiles and the Gentile world as beyond the reach of God. This woman, this unnamed woman, represents an unclean world beyond Israel's borders that the Father loved and sought. Further, if women were going to become important partners and co-workers in this new kingdom, as they would become, the disciples will have to upset centuries of old social norms regarding the treatment and often the abuse of women. They will need to imitate Jesus and value women as co-heirs of this new life and vital partners in ministry. So, that's the story. You have to come back next week for part two, the glorious ending of this story. But before we conclude this morning, let's go back to our second question. How does all this change us? And maybe we should begin with this. For those first century readers, how did it change them when they first began to read John's gospel late in the first century? How did it wash over them? Well, number one, I think this, it proved that God does love the world. Remember John three sixteen. Jesus loved this immoral woman as much as he loved religious Nicodemus. He was orthodox, trained, respected. She was unschooled, despised, and a Samaritan. And it shows that they equally, they both needed God's grace and mercy in their lives. It also gave John's readers a prototype for evangelism. The glory of Jesus is seen in his weakness, not his domination. He is vulnerable, yet he speaks the truth. And he leads with gentleness. He has no canned approach. He follows no set script. He is aware of the complexity of the human heart and focuses his message within the narrative of their lives. He has the flexibility to see the true need and drive of each. So much of our evangelism today is superficial, slavishly following a method, and is unaware or doesn't want to be aware of the needs and the desires of the people that we are seeking to reach with the love of God. Our evangelism can often be arrogant, come off as self-serving, the goal being to win an argument more than to win a soul. Now, many 
others perceive this problem and they respond by abandoning any kind of verbal witness, saying, my witness, my silent witness, my, my, my life, my actions, they will comprise what my witness is. I don't believe that's the right response at all. Why? Because look at what we see in Jesus. What do we see? The ultimate example. We see both. He's vulnerable. He's gentle. He's full of good works. And he speaks truth. Indeed, he calls her to address the one issue that she has built her life on. The one issue that's keeping her from receiving the grace of God. He has... He had what had to have been a very awkward, vulnerable conversation in bringing up this truth in her life. So this is all part of our, of our witness. So that's how it might have impacted the first generation of readers. And, and how does it continue to impact us? I want to just share two ways that I think this story challenges us. Number one, it challenges our prejudices. And number two, it challenges our sense of space. Let me tell you what I mean by both of these. Number one, it challenges our prejudices. Why do prejudices exist within us? Why do we keep unearthing a certain group or a certain class of people that we put into a big box and classify them with negative characteristics? You might recall some of you the very insightful book by Dr. Seuss that captured this phenomena in a story form. You remember Stars Upon Thars? In this story, I just gave you the highlights of it. There, uh, there were these sneetches, and the sneetches had bellies with stars. And they discriminated against those bellies without stars, plain belly people. And they would have nothing to do with that plain belly sort. So the plain bellies, there's a, I, I wish I could remember this guy's name. It's a very hilarious, funny name. He sees a profit advantage, and so he goes to the, those with plain bellies and says, Hey, I, I've got a way here. I'll sell you stars to put on your belly so you can be like them with theirs. And so all the people without stars, they put, they put stars on their plain bellies, and now they're, they're like those with. Well, then the same individual sees another profit advantage and goes to all the original group and says, Hey, now it's in fashion, now it's in style to have a plain belly. And so all of the original group that had stars had their stars taken off so that, again, they could be different. Why do we discriminate? We discriminate because we need to differentiate. And we differentiate because that is how we find worth and value. Worth only comes as I compare myself to others and find a competitive advantage. It is the essence of self-righteousness. And it comes out in religious forms. It comes out in political parties. And it comes out in all kinds of social interactions. Why do we do this? Well, the Bible gives a very simple answer. It's because our hearts are corrupt. And they are desperately sick. Our hearts are inclined to look for a way to have an advantage. A step up. Indeed, to dominate. Because of this, we build our identity, our sense of worth on something other than Christ. Let me give you two examples. For example, you might prize intellect 
and gaining knowledge. Not bad. Actually, a good thing. And not bad in and of itself. Unless you build your identity on intellect and knowledge and on how people perceive you and judge you on that basis, whether or not they accept you. I might, in that case, make it an idol in my life. I might give to it more value than I give to my relationship with God. How do I know if I idolize intellect? Here is the true test. It is revealed in my attitudes towards the uneducated, those not as smart, those without the same level of knowledge. If I despise them, if I look down on them, if I regard them as less than me, then I have overvalued intellect in God's economy. A second example. You might love wealth and nice things, and there's nothing wrong. It's good. Wealth and nice things are good in and of themselves, unless we build our sense of worth on how people perceive and judge me on that basis, whether or not they accept me on that basis. I might make wealth an idol when I assign assign to it more importance than loving God. How do I know if I idolize wealth? It shows up in my attitudes towards the poor and the impoverished, the things that I might assume about them, the things that I might uh, say about people in those neighborhoods, the things that I might think about them. If I despise them, if I regard them as less than me, if so, then I have allowed wealth to become all too an important focus in my life. Now, Linworth, I wonder if our prejudices, mine included, are keeping us from seeing opportunities to reach people that are right in front of us. Right in front of us. Here's, I think, a big point from this passage. Following Jesus will cause us to see the world differently. Taboos are traditions rooted in culture only melt under the steady gaze of a God who loves the entire world. Not just people like you and me. You know, Jesus saw this woman in a way that will allow for a glorious result. We'll see that next week. If it was up to the disciples at this point in their development, that conversation would have never taken place. And the amazing event would have never have taken place. So number one, this story challenges our prejudices. Number two, this story challenges our sense of space. Not only in making worship universal, but also in making evangelism universal. It causes us to ask the question, can the glory of God happen anywhere? Can the glory of God break through anywhere? Here, the glory of God breaks through at a common well. Does it have to break forth only in a traditional sacred space at church? Can it only break forth when we are officially on duty? Can it break forth in a laundromat, in a grocery store, or at a soccer game? A couple of years ago, I went to a grad party, and the parents and their children were uh, some friends that are far from God. And uh, the glory of God broke out there. Uh, I had 
found myself in conversations, several, with people seeking and, and asking. And then a little bit later with, uh, in my office with one of the sons of that family. The glory of God broke out there. The glory of God broke out in parties during Jesus' day. As a matter of fact, parties are a place where people talk and to some degree open up their lives. The glory of God can break out anywhere. And I, for myself, I have lost some of that spirit. I've lost some of that. And I want to regain it. That being anywhere God could use me. But, if you're a little bit like me, I get overly focused on my goals. My goals. The list of things that have to be done. I wonder how often we are on schedule, driven by something or someone other than the Holy Spirit. You know, if we're on God's schedule, we will have plenty of time to do everything He has called us to do. When we are forever, and I know there are busy seasons and busy places of our lives, but when you are perpetually moving at a hurried, frenetic pace, and we have to ask the question, is that the Holy Spirit leading me, or is that some other agenda that's driving me? The disciples were interested in food. Jesus was interested in people, wherever they were and however he met them. We fail at this, right? We fail at this. Our hearts keep producing idols, and we become judges and juries for entire groups of people that do not meet our standards. We get caught up in our own world, driven by our own agendas, and we get out of tune, out of rhythm, with the heart of God. We no longer see people as people, their needs and longings. We see people to take advantage of, to get something from, to derive some pleasure from, or to simply get out of the way. I fall short. Your pastors fall short. We all fall short. And this is why and it's how Jesus Christ stands out in such unbelievable relief from the landscape of humanity. Unhurried, vulnerable, gentle, not arrogant, truth-telling but not imperialistic, bold, seeing people as souls, not as objects, not bound by false expectations or false rules, and loving people perfectly. That's why he's our Savior. That's That's why we need him. And that's why, by the way, he was a worthy exchange for us. That's why he was a worthy exchange for our lives. We can't save ourselves. But where we were imperfect, he was perfect. And that's why he's worthy. When we say worthy is Christ, it means he was worthy of substituting his righteousness for our sinfulness. He became sin so that we might be what? We might be perfectly righteous. The great substitution. It's why he is our savior. And so how does my heart change? It doesn't change first by trying harder, though though in the walk of God, we do need to apply ourselves. But that's not the first response. We change first by seeing him, by loving him, and by worshiping him for who he is. And then we live by faith. Galatians 5, 6 says this, The only thing that counts is faith expressing itself through love. Let me have Nick. You guys can come on up. I'm going to pray here in a moment, but I 
what I'm going to do here, Nick, is I'm going to share a little bit more yet, but you guys can come on up. I want to share one last thing here. We're going to do two more. We're going to do one. Uh, we're going to sing a couple songs. And then at the very end of our service, we're going to bring up our Managua team that is leaving next Saturday or Sunday, I believe. They won't be here Sunday. And we're going to pray for them as they head out to Managua uh, with many of your gifts, bearing many of the gifts that you've given and uh, to do a great work down there. But I want to share one final opportunity here, an opportunity for how our hearts can change for this community. Because we're interested not only in Managua, which is one of the poorest of the poor nations in Central America, and we're so happy and so thrilled to be a part of um, our, our friends and that community there. But we're also invested in this community. We want to see transformation in this community. It's, we didn't build this building. We didn't make this a beautiful facility for us. We made it for others. And so here's my challenge to you. Not this Tuesday, but next Tuesday night. We're going to gather here as many as we can for a prayer walk. Now let me explain what a prayer walk is. A prayer walk is when you join with one other person and you walk through a specific area, quietly praying for the people in that neighborhood, asking God to move and to work and also to help us to love more. It's as much about trying to wrap our hearts around God's heart as it is about praying for the, the needs and the hurts and the longings behind those closed doors. Because you know that, right? You know behind those closed doors there's plenty of hurts. There's plenty of brokenness. There's plenty of needs to go around. There are those that are self-sufficient like Nicodemus but empty. And there are those that are relationally and sexually broken like the woman that we met today. And so we'll gather here at 6.30, and then we'll, we'll get you to the right place and give you some directions, some specific prayer prompts. And then from about 7.10 till 8 o'clock, we'll ask you to pray and to walk. Here are the seven communities, our areas we're going to start with. Number one is Brookside Elementary area. We've already had some connection to that community. Um, we're praying about uh, possibly landing our free clinic actually housing that in that elementary school. Um, I'm hoping to do a parenting seminar there this fall for uh, offered to the families of Brookside Elementary. Secondly, the Queensbridge area, which is a, uh, uh, an area of, a, of, uh, of need uh, right here in our community. Thirdly, the uh, brand new apartments at Olentangy and Bethel. Fourthly, the neighborhoods just north of us here in Indian Hills. And then also the two Worthington high schools, as well as Dublin Scioto High School. Would you consider joining us on that night? Would you consider giving as an offering an hour and a half of your time to walk in these neighborhoods, to pray for the people behind those doors, and to begin to try to ask God to soften your heart to be about reaching this community and reaching people? God's doing a great work in Managua, but he's doing a great work here too. And we want to join him with what he's already doing. If you can participate in that time, would you please on your Connect card write prayer walk on that so that we can make adequate plans. We'll collect those in just a moment, but that will allow us to be able to plan adequately. If we have more people, we'll maybe go to some uh, other neighborhoods or areas as well. But this is a start for us to try to first get our hearts positioned in a place where we can care a little more deeply 
about this, uh, about this community. Um, we're going to take uh, our offering here. And let me take a moment and thank the Lord for it. Again, on that Connect card, if you have a prayer request, if you have a, um, uh, a commitment today that you desire to make, if there's some need you want to communicate to us, that really is your way to sort of custom fit our way of helping you take that next step in your spiritual journey. Maybe there's something that uh, we can pray for you. So use that card to communicate to us. Let's take a moment now. Thank the Lord for uh, having heard his word today, um, asking him to free us from our self-righteousness, change us, and uh, give this offering back to him, uh, both song and prayer and our resources. Father, thank you for your words. They are powerful and they are challenging and they convict us to the deepest parts of who we are. Father, to remove the prejudices from us. And Father, help us to see the needs right, right in front of us. Make us people of love. God, help us to abandon self-righteousness and all of its ugliness, to become the people of God that, full of grace and full of truth, vulnerable yet bold. We are amazed at who Jesus is, amazed at his righteousness, and we thank you that he gave his life that we might become righteous before you. We who are sinners, he became sin, that we might become righteous. God, what what an amazing gift and exchange, and we worship you for it this morning. We offer you these gifts, this offering, Lord. It's our way to say that we love you. It's our way that we say we want to be a part of the gospel here, uh, Managua, and around the world. We want to be a part, God, of what you're doing. And so we freely give you our offering this morning as a way of saying that, Father, we love you and we worship you and that we're grateful. In Christ's name we pray. Amen.